Thanks so much, Heather. Uh, and um, it's great to see you all here tonight. And I want to talk to you tonight about real life. I think that's what we're looking at tonight, real life. Um, can there be more than this? Um, and I don't know about you, but most of us want to make the most of our one precious lives. We want to maximize our potential, to live life to the full, to squeeze every drop out of our lives. And if we're honest, we don't always know what a life well lived looks like, though. Like, what, what would my best possible life look like? What would it look like if I was living a life well lived? Uh, does it mean achieving every one of the targets and goals that we set ourselves? Does it mean seeing all my dreams uh, fulfilled, finding significance in that way? Does it mean experimenting with everything I could possibly experiment with in order to try and find some kind of satisfaction, some kind of real satisfaction? Does it mean building my identity in a way that I'm attractive to other people and in a way that I'm proud of? Does it mean searching for love, hoping for that one key relationship with the one who might help me understand who I am completely and bring meaning and joy to my life? What does a life well lived look like? Uh, I was born and bred in uh, a beautiful town just north of London called Luton. And then um, I went off to read law at Oxford, actually. And um, that was a bit of a shock uh, for me and for Oxford as well. And, um, uh, but I enjoyed it very much there. And um, actually, uh, while I was there, I tried all sorts of things searching for satisfaction. All the usual things that people try. Um, and uh, I really went after it. I thought, I really, I, I'm not satisfied. I, I feel like there should be something more. And so I pushed myself to experiment and to find different things and try different things. Um, and I didn't really find them. I, 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 I thought, well, maybe, maybe I just need a, a wonderful relationship. So I managed to find um, a relationship with a, a, a beautiful girl I met in a nightclub at 2 a.m., um, the, the equivalent of your kind of crisis night. And, um, you know, we started going out. And actually, we've outlasted the, the longest other relationship at that nightclub by about um, 17 years. But, because um, <laughs> normally it was about one day. But, um, but, but I, I, didn't, I didn't find, it, it's been great. But even then, when we started that relationship, I still thought, oh, this is good, this is good. But it's not all I thought it might be. I feel like there's something more. And then um, somehow... Um, Doors opened for me, and I got into a career that I really loved. I started working as a criminal defense barrister. I loved my job. Um, I earned you know, five times more in my first year than I ever thought I was going to earn in a job. I was very successful, really enjoying it. Um, and by 25, I'd achieved a lot of the goals I'd had in, um, for my life, really, in terms of my career. You know, I didn't have high goals, you know, obviously, but, I, but you know, I had a steady job. I had a All these things were fitting into place. I was doing work I loved with people I thought were brilliant and um, but even then I thought that on its own wasn't enough for me it's like I feel like there should be something more and I wonder if you've ever had that feeling you look at your life you might have good things in your life you might have great things in your life you might have things that you wished for and have come to pass but as you look at the whole of your life you feel in some way I thought I, I thought it would feel different to this I feel like I was made for more. I feel like there should be something more. I don't know if you've ever felt that way, if you've had that sense. What if the key purpose of your life wasn't 
an ambition, a romantic relationship, or even a fulfilling experience? What was if it was an encounter with a person who walked on the face of the earth 2,000 years ago, who died and yet lives today? Who, I mean, an encounter with Jesus. You know, that's, what if a life lived with Jesus was life in all its fullness, the best life you could ever live? What if it brought a new significance, satisfaction, and love to every other aspect of your life? You see, I encountered Jesus in a new way when I was at university. I thought he lived a life of stunning beauty. I was captivated by what he said and what he did. I thought he died in a way that stunned me actually took my breath away when I saw the remarkable sacrificial way in which he laid down his life. I was captivated by it. Takes my breath away even now. But when people say to me, why do you believe? Why do I believe? Why am I prepared to stand in front of you in a slightly cold, if we're honest, tent um, uh, on a a Friday night in Nottingham on the Downs? It's a lovely place to be. It could be other places, believe it or not. Why Why am I here? Why do I believe this stuff? Why do I say this is a life well lived? Two reasons. There are two reasons why I'm prepared to stand in front of you and talk about this. Firstly, because I believe there is strong, compelling evidence that Jesus Christ rose from the dead. And because also my experience today of life lived with him completely backs everything that he has promised. And for me, what I discovered about Jesus and his resurrection and the fact that I could encounter him today has given me now real life. Simon Gathicol uh, is one of the um, world's leading experts on the evidence surrounding Jesus' life. And he wrote an article in The Guardian recently, and he said this, There is abundant historical evidence beyond all reasonable doubt that Jesus Christ lived and died. But the really interesting question is... Did he die and live? And I just want to look at one account of Jesus' life in particular. On your tables, um, you've got this Uncover book. uh, And we've been looking this week um, at what John, who wrote that book, said about Jesus' life. And... When we look at that interesting question, did he die and live? I want you to hear this tonight. I myself could not be a Christian if it required me to take some kind of blind leap of faith. I have built my life on assessing evidence. That's what I did every day for seven years, working as a criminal defense barrister. People paid me a lot of money to look carefully at the evidence, to weigh the evidence, to assess the evidence. I could not be a Christian. I could not stand here tonight if being a Christian required me to take some kind of blind leap of faith, not based on every evidence. For me, it's a question of taking a step of faith based on good historical evidence about the life, the death, and in particular, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And one of the eyewitness accounts we're going to look at tonight is written by a guy called John. And we know, uh, we looked last night at the fact that Jesus died on the cross. You could go back and read John 19 if you weren't here last night. You'll find that fascinating, I think. Um, and then we, after that, uh, Mary... And others go to the tomb on the Sunday. And what they find is that the stone is run away. The soldiers who are guarding the tomb is gone. And Jesus is not there. 
And then according to the eyewitness accounts, Jesus appears to Mary. He appears to others who've gone to the tomb. He appears to the disciples on a number of occasions. And we're going to look at one of those occasions in this book now. We're going to look at page uh, 116 at John 20. Um, It says Jesus appears to Thomas. And this book, so we're on page 116, this book is for you to take away. And you might want to read it. I would encourage you, if you've never read an account of Jesus' life before, I'd encourage you to read this. It's fascinating. It'll take you about an hour and a half, okay? But you can do what you like with it. Because that's the thing about a gift. Once it's given to you, you can do anything you like with it. So one of my good friends, his good friend, was a guy called Earl. And he found himself in hospital um, recovering um, from an injury and an operation. And he quite likes smoking cannabis. And um, I don't know if there's anyone here. I won't ask you to put your hands up. But, um, you know, probably... (laughs) I'd say, I would guess 20%, and, um, but you, I'm not going to say. Um, uh, he quite likes smoking cannabis. And he, the thing is, in hospital, they don't give you Rizla. They just won't do it. You know, they're really funny about that. And so he had nowhere to go to find the Rizla for his um, slips. And so what he had to do was open up his drawer, and he found in his drawer a Gideon's Bible. It's actually a Gideon's copy of John's Gospel. And so he thought, you know, bullseye, hit the jackpot. It's the perfect, I don't know if you know this, um, that actually this paper is actually pretty close. You know, your average Bible paper is pretty close to the consistency, the weight, and the feel, and the rollability of Rizla. Some of you are nodding. And, um, and so what he started doing was starting at the very first page of John's Gospel, he started rolling his spliffs and smoking cannabis from John's Gospel. But because he was in hospital and he was bored, he read as he went. He was halfway, he smoked his way half the way through John's gospel, and then it dawned on him, this is true. I'm not just reading some random piece of literature, I'm reading an eyewitness account. He is probably the only person in the history of the universe who has become a Christian through smoking John's gospel with cannabis. (laughs) Read it as he went, it's amazing. So if you want to do that, you're very welcome. It's your gift. It's a gift to you, so you can do whatever you like. Um, but if you are going to use it to do whatever, I'm not condoning that, obviously. Um, <laughs> um, if, but, but if you are going to use it uh, as Rizla paper, do just read it as you go. Read it as you go. Why don't you do that? That's a good deal. Okay, so we're going to pick up the story. Um, uh, Jesus appears to Thomas. Now, Thomas, also known as Didymus, brackets because he was small. No, that's not. It's because he was a twin. And um, one of the 12 was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we've seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. A week later, his disciples were in the house again. And Thomas was with them, though the doors were locked. Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, put your finger here. See my hands. Reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. Thomas said, oh, did you hear that? Did you hear that? Just, I have to pause. That's the heat. That is the heat. It's coming on. It's coming on. Sorry, carry on. So, 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 so. Let's just, let's just read that again. We don't want to lose the moment. Um, But that is, I mean, that is quite an exciting thing for me because I'm freezing. Um, (laughs) Then he said to Thomas, put your finger here. See my hands. Reach out your hand and put it into my side. And of course, Jesus had been crucified. And he wears the marks of his crucifixion when he sees them. Reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. 
Thomas said to him, my Lord and my God. Then Jesus told him, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. I find this an absolutely um, fascinating account. The disciples are disillusioned. They're confused. They're hiding in a room with locked doors, most likely because of a crackdown against Jesus' followers after Jesus is executed and the authorities are trying to run his followers to the ground and persecute them. And Jesus appears in the midst of them and he says, peace be with you. Now, there's a number of reasons he might need to say that, um, partly because they're probably quite scared because the authorities are, are, are persecuting them, trying to track them down. But also, let's be honest, um, when you're in a locked room and someone appears, it's a little bit scary. Um, I was, when I was in uh, uni halls, um, the guy who was on the uh, next door room to me in halls was a very good mate of mine called Phil. And Phil's a brilliant guy, very bright, did very well. Um, but he, he, always, he, he never locked his door when he went to the loo. I don't know, there's probably two schools of thought in the tent about whether you lock your door when you go to the loo in halls. Depends how much you trust your hall corridor, of course. And um, he trusted me a lot, which is an error. And um, so at uh, one time, it would all, I hear him go to the loo, I hear the door close, I hear he went look at it again, again, again. One time, I, he went to the loo, I thought, let's just play a practical joke. So I went out of my room, I went into his room, door unlocked, went into his room, thought, what can I do? And I, I know what would really freak him out. So I, um, so I hid behind the curtain in his room. And I had to wait a really long time, like 15 minutes. He was, it took a, I don't know why, it was a really long time. And eventually he came back into the room. Now some of you, if you're not experienced in practical jokes, you would jump out straight away. But no, it's all about timing. So I waited. He came into the room, he sat down at his desk, he started reading his book, he carried on uh, doing his essay. I waited for almost 10 minutes. I controlled my breathing. I was perfectly still. He had no idea I was there. And then when I was convinced he would have no idea I was anywhere near him, I just said, hi, Phil. <laughs> I will never forget the look of fear and terror on his face. He almost had a heart attack. Like the guy almost fell on the floor. He was so scared. And actually, it took me quite a long time to make it up to him. But he is still my friend now. I'm very happy to report he has forgiven me. Um, so it's quite scary if someone just says, I'm, like, hi, in a locked room. So Jesus says straight away, peace be with you. He offers them peace. And they need peace because they've been through a bit of a roller coaster. They're convinced he's the son of God, but he's died on a cross. That doesn't make sense to them. They've heard that he's come back from the dead. And he keeps appearing and then going and then appearing and going. And at the same time, all hell is breaking loose around them. It's a sort of situation in which you need peace. And that's precisely what Jesus promises. I wonder if you're here tonight and you hope for peace. You know, you've got pressures. There's essays, exams, coursework. Maybe... Um, you're going through a difficult stage in a relationship. I wonder if you've experienced, like I have, waking up at two o'clock in the morning. You know, it's dark, and you kind of sit up in bed, and you look around the room. And you're suddenly, all these thoughts come into your mind. Oh, I've got to do that essay. I've got to do that exam. You know, I, I'm worried about the future. Someone you care for or love is sick. That relationship in which you put all your hopes has fallen apart. And you think, is this going to work out? Is it actually going to be okay? And Jesus said, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy burdened, and I will give you rest. 
you'll find peace. It might be you're here tonight and the thing you most long for is peace. That would make a massive difference to your life, but it sounds too good to be true. But that's something Jesus promises. And he's there with the disciples. And I find it interesting that in this eyewitness account included, this is interesting to me as someone whose responsibility was to test evidence, that in this eyewitness account included is someone who didn't believe what's just happened. It's included. Thomas says, no, it's not enough for me. I'm not sure. I need more evidence. He's skeptical. And that might be where you are tonight. Sounds great, really interesting. But I need some evidence that enables me to take a step of faith. And if that's how you feel tonight, I I understand that. I agree with you. So let me tell you, why do I believe Jesus rose from the dead? Why do I find these eyewitness counts compelling? Well, firstly, the first reason I believe Jesus rose from the dead is because no one has ever really explained how Jesus was absent from the tomb on Easter Sunday. Some people say, well, maybe the authorities took the body. But that's not very likely because if the authorities had took the body, all they had to do when people started running around going, Jesus is alive, they say, no, 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 no. Here he is. We got him. He's still dead. That would just be the easiest way to solve it. Some people say, oh, well, maybe the disciples took the body. But that's not very likely at all because not only was the tomb guarded by soldiers, but it's psychologically improbable. Why The disciples were depressed, disillusioned group of people. Look at what they had to go through for their beliefs. Why would the disciples have been willing to be tortured and die for something they would have known if they'd taken the body was not true? Some people say, well, maybe the robbers took the body, but that's the least likely of all because I haven't talked about the empty tomb because the tomb was not empty. Jesus' body was absent. But when the disciples got to the tomb, they found the grave clothes, which was the only valuable thing for the robbers to take, had been left on the floor like a butterfly's a caterpillar's cocoon when the butterfly emerges. And the headpiece, which had been around Jesus' head, had been taken off and folded and laid on one side. And when they saw that, they believed. The second reason I believe Jesus rose from the dead, and for me, if I'm honest, this is even more important. Jesus wasn't just absent from the tomb. He was present with people. He was seen by many people. And that makes a difference. When I lived, we live in West London now, but I used to, I lived for seven years in East London, in Tower Hamlets. And we did some youth work with a whole group of guys on um, quite a dangerous estate. And one summer, we took a whole load of them away to a, a Christian festival type thing in Somerset. It was a really, really risky idea. It's not every kind of youth trip that you have to say to people as they get on the bus, you know, no weapons, no drugs, leave those things here. You know, it was a little bit nerve-wracking as we took them away. And, um, but one of the guys, one of the guys was the biggest and most dangerous of all of them, a guy called Wesley. He's one of these guys, you know, you just, he was a nice guy, but he had a difficult life. And he was about six foot five wide and about six foot five high. You know, the guy was a unit. You know, he could, he could handle himself, you know, even though he was only like 17 years old. And, um, and, but he had a great time. We had a great time. You know, it was the first time lots of them have been outside of London and you're in a field and all that kind of stuff. One of them thought that hay bales were crop circles, which is quite an interesting conversation. But that's just, you know, none of, they hadn't seen. They hadn't seen the countryside before. And one of them, Wesley, we got back to London and then a little while later, he phoned me up. He says, Steve, Steve, I've got trouble, I've got trouble. I said, what's the matter, Wesley? He said, um, they're saying I committed a criminal offence in London when I was with you in Somerset. I was like, what? 
He's like, yeah, 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 I've got to go court. I've got to go court. So, um, so I knew what was likely to happen. I mean, just picture the scene, you know. Um, Wesley pitches up, and the, prosec- I mean, the prosecutor, the police, no one believed him. It was a false identification. No one believed him. Like this guy from Tower Hamlets. They're like, you know, why should we believe you? Where were you on the night in question? Oh, I was camping. Where were you camping? In Somerset. Right, who were you camping with? I don't know, like a few thousand people. Why? It was something to do with God. Doesn't sound plausible, it doesn't sound probable. So I had kind of rushed down to court to try and help him out. I walked in, and the prosecutor's there, you know, slam dunk ready, and um, this is going to be a short case. And he looks at me, and he says, oh, oh, are you, are you representing this guy? And I said, no. And he said, oh, well, why are you here? And I said, oh, he's my mate. And they said, well, but why have you come? And I was like, oh, because I've got evidence. They said, what evidence have you got? And I said, well, you're saying he was in London on this night. I can tell you that entire week he was with me. And the guy looked at me as though I was mad. Like, what? how has this happened? I don't understand. I was going to win this case, and it's all falling apart. What has happened? And I said, look, I know it doesn't sound likely, but all I can tell you is the truth. I can tell you, I can tell the judge, I can tell anyone else the truth. He was with me. He was with me. He was with me. And of course, the case was dismissed, and Wesley was fine. But that's interesting, because that's exactly what's happening here. You know, Jesus wasn't just absent from the tomb. He was present for people. And the gospel accounts and other accounts are people saying, yeah, I know. No one's been resurrected before. But he was with me. And when I read their accounts, they have the kind of ring of truth about them. And sometimes people say, well, maybe it was hallucination. And yeah, some people do hallucinate. The kind of people who tend to hallucinate are highly strung people, imaginative people, those who may be on drugs. Oh, might have hallucinated when he was in hospital. Um, But but Jesus' disciples had Thomas, the ultimate skeptic, who we've just read about. Tough, gritty fisherman. Matthew, the tax collector. Let me tell you, tax collectors do not hallucinate. But in any event, it's highly unlikely even two people could have the same hallucination. Jesus appeared on 11 separate occasions. On one occasion to more than 500 people. 500 people don't have the same hallucination. He was with me. Now, I used to have to test evidence, look for inconsistencies, look for evidence of collusion, draw it out, expose it in court. I did it for eight years. These accounts, they have the ring of truth about them. They include Thomas, who goes from saying, I'm not sure, to finishing up saying, yeah, my Lord and my God. They include the fact that the first people to see the risen Jesus were women. Now, you might think tonight there were lots of ways in which our culture discriminates against women. 2,000 years ago, it was a lot worse. Women weren't even allowed to give evidence in court. If you're fabricating a count, you cannot put women at the center of it because they're never going to be able to substantiate it. You would never do it. There's no no reason if you're coming up with an account that women would play the central role. But they're there. Last people at the cross, first people at the tomb. Women. First people to declare that he is risen. There's no reason for that to be in there unless it happened. 
And then I see the third reason I believe Jesus rose from the dead is the difference that Jesus has made to people's lives and Jesus has made to my life. So there's 10,000 people a day who are becoming Christians. There's 2 billion, 300 million Christians around the world. People of every nationality, language, ethnicity, culture, the entire socioeconomic range testifying to this common experience of an encounter with the risen Jesus. There are a number of testimonies within this tent. Why don't you ask someone tonight? And then there's the difference it's made to my own life. Now, when I look at the resurrection, it tells me, it tells me that Jesus is who he said he is, that he's the son of God. It tells me that he did what he said he was going to do. It tells me that the cross worked, that, that Jesus loved me and gave himself for me. And I can know that everything in the world that would separate me from God has been taken on his shoulders and has been paid for. And it worked. And I know that because of the resurrection. I know that Jesus bore God's judgment so we might receive his love. It's not just a great example of sacrifice. Because of the resurrection, we can know that Jesus was vindicated and the cross has the power to save. One of the cases I did when I was working as a barrister was um, representing a singer. And she was kind of like an A-list singer and uh, very successful at what she did. And she was in the newspapers a lot. And I'd love to tell you her name, but I can't because um, they'd probably sue me, and I don't have much money left anyway, so, um, you know. And, um, and the consequences for her for, were quite significant. And she said, I didn't do it. But the police didn't believe her, and the prosecutor didn't believe her. And the only evidence we had was her word. And we were desperately trying to find some evidence to support her account. And we tried and we tried and we tried. And in the end, we, were resorted, we resorted to just asking the prosecution if they would give us their files. We could just read through their files, if there's anything that might help support her account. But they were resisting and resisting and resisting. And then it came to a point where on the morning of the trial, they still haven't given us this morning of the trial, 30 minutes before the case started, the prosecutor came up to me and handed me this massive pile of papers. And he goes, there you go. So, oh, thanks. You know, <laughs> And, um, and I just, outside the court, I just had to kind of wade through these papers. No, 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 no. Just as quick as I could, you know, the judge is going to come in soon. Quick, 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 wade, 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 wade. Anything, 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 anything. And then I suddenly came across a piece of paper which stopped me in my tracks. It took my breath away. I had to read it three times. And this piece of paper proved conclusively that she was innocent. And it was right there in the midst of the prosecution case. All along, no one had seen the significance of it. They hadn't seen it because they just thought it was improbable. It was unlikely. Of course she wasn't telling the truth. And they'd missed the very truth about the case in question, which was right there in the middle of their own files the whole time. And I kind of grabbed it and I ran into court and I ran up to the prosecutor and I kind of waved it in his face and I said, look, She's innocent. He kind of took a step back. And then the judge came in and I said, Your Honor, may I hand you this document? This is a proves my client's innocence. A bit more polite to him. And, um, and the judge kind of took this document and he looked at it and he said, Well, it's obvious. It's obvious. She's innocent. And then he looked at her and he said, I formally acquit you of this charge. You're not guilty. Dum. And then she came outside, and I came outside, and there I was in my wig and my gown. And she came up to me, and she said, yes, my barrister, give me a high five. And um, 
For the first time in the English legal system, I had to go. <laughs> Never done that before. Um, she was so full of joy. The document was in the prosecution case. Do you know, at the height of the prosecution case against you, at the height of the accusation against you, Jesus took it on himself. He died for you. you know, and the cross means you don't just have the hope of forgiveness. You experience the reality of being washed entirely clean. You don't just have the hope of freedom. You experience the reality of freedom, which gives you true joy. You don't just have the hope of peace. You experience a peace which passes understanding in your innermost place. And when you receive Jesus, when you trust what he did for you on the cross, it is proof of your status, your innocence before God. But it's not just that. The resurrection is like the judge's emphatic public verdict that the cross worked. Jesus is who he claimed to be. Every word he spoke is true. You can be forgiven, free, loved, redeemed, restored. You can have a hope that doesn't disappoint, disappoint you because those who place their trust in Jesus will never be put to shame. There is hope beyond this life. Jesus promises that he will take you through death into eternal life. There is hope for this life. Jesus promises that life with him is life in all its fullness. And I find that the evidence Jesus rose from the dead is compelling. It's a game changer. But if I'm honest, I can be persuaded of that in my head without it changing my life, without it making its way to my heart. And when I place my trust in Jesus, that it went from my head to my heart. Now, I don't know how you feel tonight. You might be in two minds about all of this. You might be tempted to give it a go. You might be a bit wary about the whole thing. I know exactly how that feels. But if you don't mind, I wonder if I might have your permission just to speak personally to you in this moment. Because, you know, it's not like we've got 30 minutes to go or the judge is coming in, or there's 10 minutes before the court starts, or anything like that. But this week, this wonderful week that we've had, is coming to an end. It, it, this is the last night of it. And, um, you know, all good things come to an end. And because of that, I don't know, actually, if I'll see lots of you ever again in my life. That's just, that's just the way life works. So I'd love it if I could just say some things to you. I'd just love to know that I've said these things to you and that you've heard them. Um, because I don't know how you feel tonight. Is this just another night out in a busy term? Do you dare to believe that this might be one of the most significant nights in your life? You might feel 50-50. It might feel like a big step. It might feel risky. I know how that felt for me. But I, I need you to hear me. You will never regret placing your trust in Jesus. You know, I regret lots of things in my life. I've made mistakes. I've hurt people. I've messed up more times than I care to remember. I am far from perfect. But all these years later, I have never regretted for a second placing my trust in Jesus Christ. And I think about you know, what it would be like to go back to myself at university 
when I was a little bit nervous, a little bit scared to take that step of faith to say, you know, oh, I want to make my life about following Jesus. To say, you know, to, I want to build my life on the truth of his resurrection, that he's alive, that I can know him. When I was kind of holding back from it and nervous about what might happen, and I want to say to myself, don't hold back. I want to say to you tonight, don't hold back. Go for it. You're never going to regret this decision because I have experienced what Jesus promised. Jesus really is who he claimed to be. Jesus really did die for you because he loves you. Jesus really did rise from the dead. There is hope beyond this life. There is hope for this life because in an encounter with Jesus, we find real life, your best life, life in all its fullness. And I don't know how you feel tonight. You might feel, well, that sounds interesting, but I've got so many questions. And um, it might be you want to hang out here for a bit and we're going to have some music and you can chat to the person who brought you and just say, well, you've never told me why you became a Christian. I'd love to hear your testimony. We're talking about eyewitnesses. We're talking about the power of your story. Why don't you tell me why you became a Christian? It might be you've got a question you want to ask them, something that doesn't add up for you. It might be you want to come along, as we heard, to the Portland Coffee Place on, um, on Monday for uh, Real Explored. Bring your questions, people just like you. I just do not want to leave Nottingham tonight, 2018. might be the only time I ever come here, the only time I ever see you, without giving you an opportunity to say, okay, yeah, I've got questions. Okay, yeah, I'm not 100% sure, but I'm willing to take a step of faith based on the evidence about the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And if that's where you are, I'd say, don't walk out of this tent without doing it. Go for it. So maybe we could all close our eyes. And um, I just want to give, I feel like there might be a few people who want to respond to that tonight. And this is a moment for you tonight. And life is about the moments we seize. And so um, if you feel that way, maybe we could all just close our eyes. And um, this might be a moment for some people, but it's just kind of respecting them. And uh, if you feel that way, maybe you could just um, pray this in your heart. So, Lord, I thank you that you came for me. Thank you that you died for me. Thank you that you rose from the dead for me. That I can know you, the risen Jesus. And I'm sorry for the things I've got wrong. I'm sorry when I've turned to my own way. I'm sorry when I've done my own thing for my sin, my failures, my mistakes. And I turn to you tonight I thank you that I can know complete forgiveness because of your blood shed for me on the cross. And I place my trust. I say, would that, what you did on the cross, be for me? And Lord, would you please come into my life and lead me on? Amen.